that different types of therapy work. To my reading, they have not been evocative. They contribute only marginally to the scientific understanding of depression, the perspective I call what it is. Equally, I've held back on discussing certain innovative bodily interventions. These include stimulation of the brain through magnets or electric currents. The novel treatments may prove useful, but so far the research they've inspired has not affected our views about the disease. In general, one criterion has guided my selection of research findings. Does the material alter fundamental beliefs about depression? Studies reported in the last 10 or 12 years have transformed the prevailing theories of mood and mood disorders, and thereby widened the distance between what it is and what it is to us. That gap between science and values is my topic. Against Depression what it is to us. The final memoir. Shortly after the publication of Listening to Prozac 12 years ago, I became immersed in depression. Not my own. I was in my 40s and contented enough in the slog through midlife. But mood disorders surrounded me in my contacts with patients and readers. Messages from parents with depressed children and husbands with depressed wives filled my telephone answering machine. Letters dense with personal history crammed the mail slot. In their volume, in their particularity, these contacts were sobering, overwhelming, disorienting. Less intimate overtures came my way. Reporters and talk show wranglers approached me about the significance of drug company initiatives, antidepressant-related lawsuits, and mental health legislation. Colleagues invited me to join colloquia on particular therapies. Advocates of partisan views of mood disorder emailed me with propaganda, asking me to sign on. Immersion has a passive sound to it. I experienced my relationship to depression in that way, being swamped by a tide. I would have denied that I brought this condition on myself. Yes, in my book I discussed depression, but only en route to raising issues that stood at some distance from the treatment of mental illness. Listening to Prozac grew out of a claim that certain of my patients had made. I'm this medication, I'm myself at last. These men and women had taken an antidepressant and experienced a dramatic response. Their episode of depression had ended, and they reported another change as well. Temperamentally cautious and pessimistic, even before their first encounter with depression, these patients moved on medication toward assertiveness and optimism. This self-assured state, so they believed, represented their identity, themselves as they were meant to be. I had used this report, myself at last, as a jumping-off point for speculation. What if future similar medications had the potential to modify temperament in people who had never experienced mood disorder. There were reasons to believe that even current antidepressants might sometimes alter personality traits, making the hesitant decisive. Given access to such drugs, how should doctors prescribe? The inquiry moved from medical ethics to social criticism. What does our culture demand of us in the way of assertiveness? Assessing my patient's attitude toward antidepressants required, I thought, attention to grand perennial questions. How do we identify true self? Does the path matter in the journey to contentment? It was medication's extra effects on personality rather than frank disease that provoked this line of thought. After all, for centuries doctors have treated depressed patients using medication and psychological strategies. When those efforts succeed, restoring health, we're grateful. The ethical dilemmas that interested me lay elsewhere. Strange though it may sound, I never imagined that I had written a book about depression. 
But authors cannot predict or control the fate of their books any more than parents can determine the direction of their children's lives. Listening to Prozac emerged into an era of marked interest in depression. Everything about it had the power to fascinate. Diagnosis, treatment, mental health care politics, gender issues, intimate experience. When listening to Prozac found readers, it became the best-selling book about depression. In stores, it was shelved beside how-to manuals on recovering from mood disorder or living with those afflicted by it. I had never intended for my book to be useful, but readers wrote to say that listening to Prozac had guided them to one or another resolution of their depression through taking medication or steering clear. As with a book, so with its author. Where his readers locate him is where he finds himself. The book's career made me an authority on depression. One unnerving development was my exposure to memoirs of mood disorder. The bedside table groaned under the weight of typescripts and bound galleys. There were accounts by sexually depleted depressives, promiscuous depressives, urban single mothers, small-town family men, femme fatale, gay lotharios, celebrities, journalists, ministers, and psychologists. The collection represented an outpouring of autopathography such as no prior generation had known. I was asked to endorse these books, to review them, to vet them for publishing houses, to assess their worth in the midst of a bidding war. The psychiatrist is pleased, overjoyed, to see a mental illness shed some of its stigma, but as a reader I became ever less enthralled. Despite the superficial variety, the memoirs of depression struck me as distressingly uniform. Their constant theme, their justification, was confirmation of the new reality that depression is a disease like any other. The author's self-exposure was an act of witness, converting former private shame to current openness about an unexceptional and unexceptionable handicap. This much was welcome, a testimonial for the public health view of depression, often accompanied by advice to readers to seek evaluation and, if needed, treatment. But then, more often than not, in these memoirs, hints of pride showed through, as if affliction with depression might, after all, be more enriching than, say, a painful and discouraging encounter with kidney failure. Expressions of value would emerge. Depression gave me my soul. The spiritual gift was not the insight that might arise in the face of any adversity. Despite their insistence on its ordinariness, the memoirs made depression seem ennobling. I had admired the first handful of these books, not least for their courage. But the tenth confession is not so brave as the first. Soon I reached my limit. A wash in memoir, I told myself that I should complete the set. The memoir to end all memoirs. The final autopathography. A personal account of depression by someone who has never, this would be my claim, actually suffered the ailment. If this project moved beyond the level of private joke, it was because depression had, in fact, perturbed me as disease and suffering always perturb those who grapple with them. In my case, the point of confusion was this issue of romance, the glamour of depression. For the practicing psychiatrist, depression is grim enough. It is true that among the major mental disorders, depression can have a deceptive lightness, especially in the early stages. Depending on the prevailing symptoms, the depressive may be able to laugh, support others, act responsibly. Depressed patients participate actively, even compulsively, in their own treatment. And depression, especially a first episode in a young adult, is likely to respond to almost any intervention, psychotherapy, medication, the passage of time. 
In my medical school days, if an inpatient psychiatry ward had spun out of control, a KG chief would hold off on admissions until a good prognosis depressive was referred. The hope was that the new arrival's recovery would restore morale for staff and patients alike. But the depression I dealt with in my practice had settled into stay. The unrelenting darkness was a function of the length of my tenure here. I've seen patients in Providence, Rhode Island for over 20 years. In a small practice, failure accumulates. As I wrote more, I let my clinical hours dwindle. The result was that patients who were not yet better filled many slots, along with those returning to treatment. And the popularity of listening to Prozac meant that the loudest knocks on the office door were from families with a depressed member who'd faltered elsewhere. Circumstance made me a specialist in unresponsive mood disorder. I worked amid chronic despair. Many psychiatric practices have this quality as they mature. Like depression is depression in young adults. Those patients were the ones war chiefs favored. Suicide's always a risk. We worry over it and guard against it. Still, most patients in their 20s and early 30s do well. Often, a trigger for the acute episode is apparent, so there's something to discuss, the precipitating event and its relationship to prior disappointments. Psychotherapy plays a central role in treatment. The doctor feels of use. But as the patient ages, bouts of depression recur with greater frequency. Later episodes can appear spontaneously, without apparent reason. They last longer, respond more poorly to any intervention, remit, when they do, more briefly. Certain functions may remain continuously impaired, concentration, confidence, the sense of self-worth. Even with first episodes, there